quickly before we uh, dismiss uh, the kids to children's church, let me say this word because there's the potential as we talk today about getting messy, there's the potential for all of these little kids in here to be totally confused. Because <laughs> we've told them most of their young life, don't get messy. And here we're going to be encouraging you guys today to not just get messy, but embrace the messiness. So children, take a look at these, uh, at these two uh, young men here. This picture was taken when I was doing an Impact Virginia camp about 10 years ago. These two young men came in at the beginning of the day and they were asked to clean out a fireplace. <laughs> and at the beginning of the day, they're going, seriously? For real? You want us to, like, get up in there? Ew! You know. This is what they look like at the end of the day. And look at the smiles on their face. Partly because it was fun getting dirty. Let's, let's face it, it was fun. But the other thing is, is that they accomplished something. They did something. There was a project that they were given, and at the end of it, they were able to look at this and say, hey, the blackness is gone. There's brick there. This is cool. We, we did something. And that's what this is about. Sometimes you don't accomplish things that you are supposed to accomplish in this life without getting a little bit messy. Children, kindergarten through third grade. Kindergarten, children, kindergarten through third grade. Join Miss Doris for Children's Church. She will take you downstairs. For any of you all who are visiting with us today, you can pick up your kids at the end of the service down in the fellowship hall. I will assure you today that uh, I'm not actually going to preach. You've had, over the last several months, you've had wonderful expository preaching, amazingly great uh, sermons and messages by Brian and others who have filled the pulpit. I'm uh, not going to even attempt to do that. So any of you all who might have expected preaching and maybe even me to touch on hot topic buttons or controversial issues and stuff, you know, that's, at, at least we're not going to go there today. The thing that is most prevalent on my mind today, and I'm just going to share a few things from my heart, this messiness issue, because we're in the midst of a transition as far as the church is concerned. We have embraced this 2020 vision for our church. And it's exciting. It's got so many uh, wonderful possibilities uh, for the future of our church. But at the same time, we're in this process of now putting the rubber to the road. And that means actually getting messy with it. Now, I'm sure that here in this room, any of you all who have kind of been dealing with, you know, how do we work with it? Nobody here is struggling with it, I'm sure. You know, we don't have any confusion. There's no questions in terms of what pillar you fit under. And you know, we're not having any of that issue here, are we? You know, just... So what I thought we'd do this morning is really just to take a look 
at another community of believers, this New Testament Christian church. And I know you've heard so many pastors through the years talk about, you know, we're modeling ourselves after the New Testament church. Well, if we are modeling ourselves after this group of young Christians that is described in the book of Acts, I mean, they must have been an extraordinary group of people and an extraordinarily fire on fire for God, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit. And you would assume correctly. Yes, you would assume correctly. But don't assume that there was not some messiness involved with this church, too. These Jewish Christians... They were suddenly free from the law. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, they no longer had to do all of these things that were required of Jewish law. How to eat, what not to eat, what not to, how to stay ceremonially clean. You know, who do you associate with? All of these things that were Jewish law were suddenly gone. They were free of all of that. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine the the vacuum that was placed in their lives when they suddenly had no parameters that they had grown up with? If you um, if you can realize that. Um, even when it comes down to this uh, a patriarch of the faith, um, Peter had to literally be knocked into a deep sleep in order for God to actually speak to him about letting go of some of these things that you have grown up with. A sheet comes down from heaven, and on this sheet there is food. A selection of animals and food, food that he had never eaten in his entire life. And God is telling him in a vision that you can't declare unclean what I have declared clean. Now, let me give you a modern example of this. Suppose somebody whispers in your ear, you know, the things that I've told you all of these years about chocolate. Chocolate is actually good for you. You see, there's a new scientific and biological study that says that if you eat a whole bunch of chocolate, you'll actually lose weight. What you've heard before is all wrong. Young people, those giant Hershey bars, you can eat two of them. You won't wake up in the morning with your face all broke out. That's what this is the equivalent of. Now, Peter was in the little town of Joppa when this vision came to him. And then he took a further step. He went to Caesarea, where there was a Roman centurion whose name was Cornelius. Now, note that I just said Roman centurion. Roman centurion. In other words, he wouldn't make it into Adam Sandler's The Hanukkah Song. He was not a Jew. This takes this whole Jewish law thing to another level. Because see, according to Jewish law, the Jews were not even allowed to associate with a Gentile. 
What kind of reception do you think that, G, uh, that Peter got when he went back to Jerusalem, having been in the home of a centurion, a Roman, a Gentile, not only having been in the home of this person, but he, he, he ate with him. He ate chocolate. <laughs> but at this point in this narrative in the book of Acts, there is another individual who is on the horizon who is going to rock their world even more so than Peter. At this point, at the same time, pretty much at the same time that Peter is going through his enlightenment, Saul of Tarsus is literally being blinded by the light. Yeah. I almost was tempted to get Daniel to like cue up the song at that point, you know, that, but I, I decided, you know, not to do it. The notorious Saul of Tarsus. The notorious Saul of Tarsus has been blinded by the light of Jesus Christ and he has become a believer. And he, it seems like he's wasted no time because almost immediately he is out in the synagogues and in the streets and he is preaching. And of course, what happens? It gets messy. Obviously, the Jews, the Orthodox Jews, who now see this happening, this is, this, Saul was one of their allies. Saul was somebody who even participated in persecution of the Christians. Now, not only has he become a believer, but he's actually preaching. That's even worse because he's converting people to Christianity. The Christian disciples, meanwhile, are knowing that the Jews are not happy with this and they're trying to get him out of the city. But the Jews are watching the gates of the city because they just, they're just, we got to stop this. So Saul has a somewhat inauspicious ending to his first foray into Christian ministry. As you see, the Christian Jews are having to lower him in a basket outside the walls of the city late, late at night. So at this point, Saul decides that he is going to travel to Jerusalem to try to hook up with the disciples that are in Jerusalem. And this is a logical, it's a logical step for, for Saul at this point. But I'll say it again, not only were there issues as far as the Jews relative to what's happened to Saul, but this was also an issue within the Christian church. Saul arrives in Jerusalem and he wants to see the disciples, but the disciples don't necessarily want to see him. You see, the Christian church really didn't know what to do with, with Saul of Tarsus in these early days. This was Saul of Tarsus, the Saul of Tarsus, the let's bring the Christians bound in chains back to Jerusalem, that Saul of Tarsus. They were afraid. They were nervous. Some had not even heard that he had been converted. Remember, this was way long before there was Snapchat and Twitter. There was no cable news companies that you could argue over which was fake news and which was not fake news. Enter one of the most remarkable characters of the New Testament. He's one of the supporting cast. 
Now, when I say supporting cast, you're starring roles. That's Peter, Paul, and sometimes to a certain extent, John and maybe James. Your supporting cast, I love the supporting cast. And this is one of my favorite characters of the entire Bible, Barnabas. Now, by the way, let's let's talk about Barnabas for a minute. And uh, when I say let's talk about Barnabas, I've, I've shared the platform with so many speakers and stuff through the years. And, you know, I, I can share this little secret with you. Whenever you hear a speaker that says, let's talk about this for a minute, or uh, let me digress here and talk about well, what, you know, I'll tell you exactly what that means. It means that we're going to chase a rabbit. Barnabas. The first time we hear about Barnabas is earlier in the book of Acts. The author talks about an incident involving an offering that was taken. And by the way, another thing we can commiserate with the Jerusalem church. Uh, I don't know whether you all are aware of this, but the Jerusalem church was always strapped for money. They were impoverished. So all through the region, different churches in Samaria and uh, Judea and all through that area, churches would regularly carry offerings to the Jerusalem church. Barnabas was a part of the church, and what he did was something a little unusual. He sold a piece of property, sold a piece of land, and he quietly gave all of the proceeds to the apostles. The second mention of Barnabas is related to this incident of Saul of Tarsus showing up to Jerusalem and expecting to be welcomed by the disciples. It was Barnabas who actually welcomed Saul in, listened to his testimony, and eventually introduced him to the disciples. Without Barnabas, it is hard to say what would have happened in this story of Saul of Tarsus, because without Barnabas' encouragement, I'm not sure that uh, Saul would have ever had that much of a reception there. So Saul stays with the disciples in Jerusalem for a little while, but it does not take long for things to get messy. And now it's the Jerusalem disciples who are saying, you know, oh my gosh, we've got to get this guy out of this city before he gets himself killed or he gets some of us killed in the process. And, you know, and I hate to say it, Saul is sort of like, you know, you know how it is when you've got somebody in your congregation and you really love him to death and you know there's great possibility here, but then again, you're really glad when that guy doesn't show up for a business meeting. Oh my gosh, this guy is just, go- oh, please, you know, please, yeah. So what happens with Saul at this point is the Jerusalem Christians help him get out of the city. They take him down to uh, where he can catch a ship and, they, and he goes back to Tarsus. So Saul is now out of the city and he's gone back to Tarsus. Now there's this funny little verse that occurs right at this point. And I don't know whether... The author of Acts, most people believe this is Luke who wrote the book of Acts. I don't know whether he meant this on purpose, but it's sort of just ironic after all of this drama with Saul. There's this verse that appears. And then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. 
and it was strengthened. So, at about this same time, Barnabas, while Saul is in Tarsus, Barnabas is sent to another growing, prosperous church that's up in Antioch. And when Barnabas gets here, Barnabas realizes that the work to be done is enormous. And it's just amazing things that are being done, but he realizes that I can't do all of this all by myself. I need a helper. So who do you think that he goes to? He travels to Tarsus, and he looks for Saul. This is an amazing story, this, this story of this partnership, this partnership between Saul and Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the individual who sees a need and tries to respond to it, the individual who always sees the potential in somebody. And then Saul, the fiery Saul, who basically is so on fire for God and the Holy Spirit that he just basically is just out there and, and getting his feet as messy and getting his hands as dirty as possible. It's just an amazing sort of story between these two. They work together in Antioch for about a year. And then they take a trip. Remember the Jerusalem church and the offerings that are being all taken up for the Jerusalem church? Saul and Barnabas are appointed by the Antioch church to take an offering to the Jerusalem church. So they travel back up to Jerusalem. This time Saul is with Barnabas. He's had a little bit of time, a little bit of stuff under his belt. The Jerusalem church, uh, they have a great time. When they leave Jerusalem to head back to Antioch, this is why this is significant. They have a passenger that they take along with them when they leave Jerusalem. My namesake, John Mark. I'm just going to look at that for a minute. I don't know whether that's what John Mark looked like or not, but basically John Mark, he'd grown up in Jerusalem. His mother had a house in Jerusalem that was a popular gathering place for all of the Christians at that time. So he not only had grown up an Orthodox Jew, but he also was a converted Christian and he'd seen this growing new movement of Christianity. So when he goes to Antioch with Paul and, so uh, with Paul and Barnabas, I'm not sure that he was really um, prepared for what was going to happen next. Because what happened is that um, they arrive in Antioch and the church at Antioch decides that they're going to commission Paul and Barnabas to go on their first missionary tour. In other words, to go this next step, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ basically to the ends of the earth. Whether John Mark was prepared for this, he may have thought that, you know, I'm just you know going to have a great time with my and Barnabas, uh, most people believe that, that he was related to Barnabas uh, somehow. John Mark was like a cousin or something. And they really do believe that he was really young at this time, uh, if in his early 20s, perhaps even a teenager. So this might have been, you know, not what he was prepared for as far as um, this first missionary tour. Once again, they waste no time once they've been commissioned in setting off. They travel down to Seleucia, where they sail for their first destination, which is the island of Cyprus. And this is where Barnabas is actually originally from. So it's a logical first stop. 
Their first place of ministry is the town of Salamis. And there's this little tag in the verse there, you see. And John Mark was with them as their helper. So they continue traveling throughout this island of Cyprus. And in the town of Paphos, they had this pretty intense encounter with a sorcerer who um, uh, was trying to interrupt Saul of Tarsus in everything that he was trying to say to the people in town. And Saul returned with his own bag of tricks. Uh, you wonder where he learned this. He blinded the guy for a few moments. Sounds like an old trick, huh? Well, of course, chaos ensues. So everywhere that Paul went, or Saul of Tarsus at this point, and speaking of that, it was about at this point that the author of Luke stops calling Saul, Saul. At this point, without any explanation, he's now Paul. And Barnabas begins to be overshadowed pretty much because Paul was such a dynamic figure. So they sail from Cyprus at this point to Perga. Perga is on the main, uh, main part of Asia Minor, in Pamphylia. And it is at this point that we have one of the more... Uh, profound mysteries of the New Testament. John Mark leaves. John Mark leaves and he sails back to Jerusalem. The author of Acts does not give a reason why. He just simply says, John Mark leaves. And I, it probably wouldn't behoove us to really try to guess and try to figure out why, because there's no explanation. But I know you all, I know you all are sitting there right now trying to figure out, ooh, all of the scenarios. See, I do the same thing. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe it was that whole thing of, you know, Cyprus is one thing, but now they're going across the water and they're going to the mainland of Asia Minor. That's a whole different... And remember, John Mark grew up in Jerusalem. He was surrounded by Jews all of his life. This whole thing of taking the gospel to the Gentiles... That may have been even much for him. So at this point, they travel. Barnabas and, and Paul travel throughout this main part of where you see Galatia and, and Lyconia, all of this part of Asia Minor. They wind up finally back down at another Antioch. And that's the last point on the, the journey as they head back to Perga. And of course, uh, it, it would be another uh, long uh, exhortation to just go through everything that happened on that particular missionary journey. That's for another time in another place. They wind up back in Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas report to the church. But even in the midst of this reporting to the church, there is now this shadow that hangs over all of the, the, the Palestinian Christian movement. And it is this thing that Peter and Paul have begun to, to perpetuate, this taking the gospel to the Gentiles. It's reached a point to a, now it's a crisis. Now, what do you think church folks do when an argument needs to be resolved? In, an, in a modern sense, what do we do? We have a convention. <laughs> or we have a conference, right? A church conference. 
Although in admittance, uh, this is probably what a lot of our church conferences look like. But <laughs> So the result of this conference, now get this, I love this, because you think this is only something that happens in modern day. The result of this Jerusalem conference was a decree, a letter that was sent out to all of the churches and all of the 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 Gentiles, in all of this region. And basically, it absolved them of all of these rules and regulations that were part of Jewish law. Let's not put that yoke around these people that want to be Christians. But let's do this. Let's give them a couple of the mainstay laws. Abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, sexual immorality. These things you maintain. But the rest of that Jewish law, it's not applicable to you. Neither is it really applicable to even the Jews now because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So everybody has a letter now. They sent a letter out. So, of course, that solved everything. There were no more problems ever, ever again because they had a letter now. Yeah, wouldn't it be really cool if it would work that way? So, let me give you one little more nugget as we wrap this up. After this conference, Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch, and Paul says, let's go back to these towns and all of these cities that we visited. Barnabas is cool with that. But Barnabas also says, let's take John Mark. Paul is not cool with that. Their disagreement ends up being to a point where they split up. This is Paul and Barnabas. That's like Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis when they split up. They split up. Their disagreement got so messy that they split up. Now, it's typical of Barnabas. He pleads John Mark's case for most of the same reasons that he had pleaded Paul's case through the years. There was potential for some messiness, sure, yeah. But then there was this great potential for the kingdom. There were so many things that were possible. Now, I realize, I realize that history is on the side of Paul in this argument in terms of what we now know of what Paul did. But I have to be honest with you. I sympathize with Barnabas at this juncture. I would have been pleading John Mark's case. You see, for most of us, it's a natural instinct to want to avoid messes. We want to have this experience of living this life, of worshiping God, of serving God. But we try to figure out ways to do it without getting our hands dirty. It's kind of like that person who says he's been to Mexico City. When in reality, what he did is he went to Disney World and he went to the Mexico City exhibit at Epcot Center. You understand what I'm saying here? He listened to all the music. He took the little gondola ride. You know, he did all of the stuff there, but he didn't have to learn how to speak Spanish. He didn't have to negotiate, you know, and, and, and change his currency. You know, he was able to use American dollars to buy his 
And even the food that he bought was probably Tex-Mex rather than really true Mexican food. He didn't have to negotiate through the streets and stuff. He didn't have to, you know, avoid all of those seedy places, you know, that you can find in Mexico City. Although I'm told that there are some seedy places at Disney World, too. But this is what we're looking for in our churches and even in our ministries. We want to do our thing for God without having to jump into the mud bath. And, you know, you can do that. I mean, you can. You can continue to stay on the periphery where all you, you know, avoid the drama and avoid the messiness. You can do that. And this is the way a lot of people live their lives. I mean, just keeping it simple. Avoid conflict. Avoid relationships, actually. Young people, when you find that boy or that girl that you really, really like, if you want my advice in terms of keeping your life nice and simple and uncomplicated, don't start dating that person. We have couples in this congregation that have been married for over a half a century. Dick, how long have you and Caroline been married? And I could, I could go, I, I don't know whether Betty Gardner is here today, but, you know, amazing stories as far as marriages. And you know what? I could probably ask every single one of these individuals, every one of these couples, yeah, there's been some messiness along the way, hasn't there? There's been some messiness, but would you do it again? <laughs> you see, when we avoid the messiness, we also miss out on some of the most beautiful things that you can experience in this life. If you avoid getting involved in the church, getting your hands dirty, what you miss out on is the richest blessings that God has for us in this life. If you avoid going and getting your hands dirty in mission work or even here in the neighborhood, talk about getting messy sometimes. But what you miss out on is the blessings that God has for you when that happens. And what you miss out on is what happens with the furthering of the kingdom of God. The last mention of John Mark is actually in one of, one of Paul's letters. It's his second letter to Timothy. And at this point in time, Paul is imprisoned in Rome. And this is not one of those imprisonments that involves him being able to talk to people and stuff. He's literally in one of the dungeons. It would only be a few days after this letter was sent, historically, that um, it is registered that Paul was ex executed in Rome. And it seems like in this second letter to Timothy, he actually knew this. He was awaiting his second trial. And at the conclusion of this letter, he's asking for a few things. One of those things he asks for is that someone send him John Mark. Whatever had happened in the past, whatever had separated them, 
those issues seem to be in, seem to have been resolved. Let's stand as we worship.